Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. And thanks, Calabra, for sponsoring this podcast. Now, lately, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about drug discovery. It's the identification of new therapeutics, that kind of thing. And essentially, these are just chemical compounds that interfere with, or maybe in some cases augment, some aspect of cellular function, signaling, metabolism, and something that that corrects what's gone bad and leads to some sort of disease or disorder. But what about cases where you can't change the way a cell is behaving because the cells are gone? Many problems stem from a loss of the cell or damage to the cells. Things like hearing loss or spinal cord injury or macular degeneration, type 1 diabetes. These are all examples where Cells are either damaged or or victims of autoimmune disorder, whatever. There's a lot of different ways in which cells lose their ability to do what they're supposed to do. So what if we could treat cells of the body like parts of the car? I mean, you know, if something goes wrong in the car, you replace it. Just replace that part. We routinely do this with some organs these days. But could cell transplants be a bridge? a therapy that can recellularize a biological matrix to correct a problem caused by cell death or damage. Now, I'll admit it sounds a little bit like science fiction to me, but our guest says that this is science fact and that it's changing the lives of those who have been treated. So today's guest is Brian Culley. He's the CEO of Lineage Cell Therapeutics. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Well, thank you, Kevin. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is a really fascinating topic and really excited to dive in. So lineage cell therapeutics, you're creating cells that are used in allergenic therapy. So what does allergenic therapy mean? And are these cells really just transplants that remedy cell losses in specific contexts? Yes, that's correct. And and actually, that's my preferred way of, of describing them. We use a phrase called replace and restore. So we are we are manufacturing replacement parts, in this case, specific kinds of cells of the human body, and we transplant them to the patient in order to return the, the function or activity that was lost due to certain diseases or conditions. So yeah, and un- unlike cell therapy, I like to think of our work as being cell transplants. Okay, so as a cell biologist, a guy who thinks about this stuff, are you taking stem cells that have, you know, lots of different possibilities that they can differentiate into and placing them into a context where they then receive signals from the environment around them, the immediate cellular environment that then gives them an identity? Or are you kind of conditioning them ahead of time in vitro and then introduce, letting, allowing them to differentiate, say, you know, in a test tube and then introducing them to their new context? Yeah, we differentiate the cells before they go into a human being. So it's an important point that we never administer a stem cell, an undifferentiated stem cell to to any of our patients. What we do is we use the power of stem cells to become other things. 
in, in fact, they have the ability to become any of the 200 cell types of the human body. So we give them that instruction or that recipe to become a specific type of cell. And then that cell is then transplanted to the patient. And so everything is done outside the body. All the differentiation and, and conversion into the final cell type is done outside of the body where we are able to, to test them fully for their identity and, and their function before administering them to a patient. And they, they really don't work at arm's length. They, they do secrete trophic factors and, and so forth, but really we're relying on the direct replacement of the cell into the same location where it's missing in order to, much like a bone marrow transplant or an organ transplant, take over and assume the responsibilities that are necessary for normal function or improved function. Okay. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. So you must be using a patient's own stem cells to get around questions like rejection. Actually, we don't. I'll, I'll tell you how we address rejection in a moment, but we actually use cell lines. So there are, there are many stem cell lines that are available. And when you use a stem cell line uh, for all of the patient or any patient, that is what makes it an allogeneic therapy. And uh, you can imagine that the cost of an allogeneic therapy versus one that is patient-specific would be expected to be far lower. So if you, if you start with cells from a patient and you manipulate them and you put them back in to avoid rejection, while you are greatly reducing the possibility of rejection, you are greatly increasing the cost of that therapy because it's truly a custom and bespoke treatment for that one person. So what we do in order to drive down the cost of these therapies is we use cells that are uh, tolerable by anyone. And then we have given our patients short-term immunosuppression. Uh, so for example, in the, in the eye, we've gone down to just 90 days. In the spinal cord, it's just 60 to 90 days. So we're able to address rejection by focusing in areas of the body where your risk of rejection is much lower. And in fact, we've never had a single report of rejection of our cells. And that means, well, we're between probably four and five dozen patients treated at this point. That's neat. Are these the cells that have been genetically engineered to not present surface antigens that would, or, or glycoproteins or whatever's on the surface? that signals the, ant the antigenicity that would cause rejection? The ones that we are using today are not genetically edited in any way. So we, we avoid completely the risks of genetic manipulation. However, we did sign an agreement with a gene editing company not long ago because that could be an area of interest for us to delete the identity of the cells that's responsible for and driving rejection, that would be important for us to go into other areas of the body where we're not operating right now. So both are relevant to our work. That's a great question. Thanks. No, it's, it's an interesting one because I remember they were using CRISPR-Cas9 to delete different surface antigens for treatment of childhood leukemias. And they would, it would get around the problem of of all the associated problems with rejection or cytokine storm, things that would happen upon introduction of these new cells. So it seemed to be one way around, but it's, it's good you have another one. I guess the question I have next is, is that just for someone, I have no idea how this is done. When you have stem cells, which are just off to the side, I, was, I donated stem cells or they took stem cells from my bone marrow 60 times when I was a graduate student. Wow. <laughs> yeah, with good times. They were using them in research downstairs. I was in the molecular biology wing above hematology oncology. But, and I was cheaper than a, to anesthetize than a baboon, they said. That's, <laughs> I guess that's good. Nice. 
So when you have stem cells in a dish and there's just cell lines that are like, what are they? I forget the word they use now. These are immortalized cell lines or something that always will give you more stem cells. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and so how do you take the cell line in the dish and give it instructions to go one way or another? What kind of growth factors or how do you do it? Right. It's a, it's a two-step process. So step one is you, you start with your, your stem cells. And what's amazing about the cells that we use is that they don't have what's called a Hayflick limit. You might remember that from, from the cell biology days. A Hayflick limit describes the number of times you can divide cells before they accumulate mutations and, and they're no longer usable. The cells that we use don't have a Hayflick limit. You can divide them forever. So that means that we have an unlimited supply. We can grow them and divide them and keep going and going until there's you know, mountains of cells available. But those cells are still undifferentiated. These are like you know, the, the kid who hasn't decided his or her major in college yet. So what we do is then we provide the biological instructions. We are borrowing the same kinds of developmental biological events that occur and applying them to these cells in order to, like a, like a sheepdog, corral all of the cells to become just one type of cell. So if we want retinal pigmented epithelial cells, we give the instructions, the, the concentration, the, the duration, the specific kinds of growth factors in order to manufacture just one type of cell and ensure that no residual undifferentiated cells are making their way into our clinical material. So those are the two steps. Grow them up into huge number and then run them through the process by which you can manufacture just a discrete and mature cell type. That's really cool. So is it really just exposure to specific growth factors or, or small proteins that, that give the instructions for cells to take on a specific fate? Uh, generally, yes. And the details, of course, are essentially the subject of our intellectual property. The, the workhorse of the company is being able to figure out how to affordably and reproducibly treat these cells so that you always get the same material at the end because the FDA would never let you have you know, great variability in your clinical material. And so you have to make the same stuff every single time. And, and that's very difficult. Yeah, it would seem so. Because it would seem that as cells would be developing and differentiating in a, from one form to another, that just the fact that there's more cells in the dish that now are excreting their own factors and doing their own thing, that cells do talk to each other with small peptides and other molecules. And so here you have this case where you can have a uniform population. Okay. Mm, yep. So you mentioned the eye. What are the therapies that would benefit from cells differentiated into cells for retinal pigmented epithelium? So the main area where we're working is in dry age-related macular degeneration. This is one of the leading causes of blindness in this country. And the hallmark of that condition is the death of what are called RPE cells. And these are specialized cells that comprise one of the layers of the retina. This is a program that we're working with Roche and Genentech. We signed a $670 million agreement with Roche and Genentech to work in this area. And it sounds so easy to describe it. We manufacture RPE cells and then we deliver them to the subretinal space where the old ones were. And where those old ones have died off, because they perform such an important function for your vision, when they die off, typically through aging, you can never get that sight back. It is irrevocably lost. And so we are administering to the patient brand new, healthy, vigorous, viable 
RPE cells that take over the function and support the visual cycle, support the photoreceptors. And we've seen some extraordinary clinical outcomes in, in some of the patients who have participated in this clinical work. The therapy that you mentioned, is this one that is targeting the same sort of macular degeneration that people with diabetes encounter, or is this something different with age-related uh, macular degeneration? Yeah, this is typically an, uh, it's a separate disease or condition, age-related macular degeneration, specifically the dry form. So many people may be familiar with the wet form of AMD. There are some very successful therapies for the wet form. But until just a couple of months ago, there was never anything available for the dry form. So it's a huge problem. It's separate and discrete from diabetic retinopathy. But one of the things that I think is interesting about our approach is that unlike most therapies that people are trying to develop today that focus on just one pathway, right? One antibody or one small molecule to change one pathway. In the setting of dry AMD, there are so many things going wrong with these cells, right? These cells are, are destroying themselves, they're dying off. So it's more than just one little thing that's going wrong. And, and that's what I love about our approach is we're replacing the whole cell. So it doesn't really matter if it's pathway one, pathway two, pathway 7,600. We're clearing everything out and starting fresh with brand new healthy RPE. And I think that's why we're seeing these large clinical benefits in these patients. So RPE, this is the primary cell that is responsible for cycling of, of the, the not, not just the photoreceptor, but also the chromophore, right? The part that allows the photoreceptor to be functioning. And is this, and this is what just still is a little bit vague for me as a scientist, you're putting these cells into the context of the, of the retina and somehow they're actually becoming functional retina cells. And so is that really the, so they, they just automatically just snap right in and start doing what they're supposed to do, right? Just because of the context they're in. Yeah, the beautiful thing about the the biology that underlies this approach is that it is dynamic, it is flexible. And so while you wouldn't be able to put a, a liver cell into the eye and ask it to support a photoreceptor, you can put an RPE cell into the eye and it will support a photoreceptor. Now, of course, we ensure that our cells have considerable similarity to, to native RPE cells. So we, we check for the same surface markers that you should see on the outside of the cell. We look at the transepithelial resistance. The cells need to be able to polarize. They need to be able to phagocytose material. These are all properties of RPE cells. So exactly what we're making compared to what's found naturally in your body is probably not a perfect copy, but as long as it's functioning and as long as it's safe and well tolerated, we don't really care. So that's what's really nice about this is that you can make a cell, you can get the control and the reproducibility of a cell and the scale of a cell that you know that when it goes into the setting, it will perform largely the identical effects of the native cell. And as long as, well, as long as you have someone who says, I can see better, we're pretty happy about the outcome. Yeah, this is pretty cool. So you're also talking about cell therapy, right? You're actually delivering cells to do the job. And why is this sometimes a better approach than folks who would say, we corrected a visual problem in the RPA with gene therapy, for instance? So both cell and gene therapy have certain advantages. In our hands, it appears that cell therapy is one and done. And that's one of the advantages of gene therapy. It's probably a one-time treatment. And so there are tremendous advantages in terms of the administration compared to drops or monthly injections or any, any other approach that you would have. One 30-minute one procedure and you know, you're good to go for the rest of your life. What's challenging about gene therapy is that you've got thousands of genes to choose from. 
And even if you choose a gene that is fairly prominent in terms of how often it's broken in a setting of a, of a particular retinal disease, you're leaving every other patient behind. And so there are many different genes that can be broken and need to be replaced or repaired. And gene therapy may be ultimately proven to be effective in those settings, but you're, you're basically ignoring everyone who has some other problem. And that's, again, the power of cell therapy is you're, you're addressing all the genes at once. The, the genome within the cell that we transplant has, it, you can almost think of it as like 30,000 gene therapies all at the same time. And so that's where I think cell therapy in the eye in particular has a huge advantage over gene therapy. Yeah, that's really neat. So when you're talking about cell therapy, though, is this actually making things better or is it just keeping things from getting worse in clinical applications? That's a fascinating comment because if you pick up any sort of medical text or journal publication about dry AMD, it's always called progressive and, and it is a degenerative condition. And the conventional wisdom is that the only thing you can do is slow the progression, sort of like a tumor, slowing the growth of the tumor. But we actually have shown data where we can get someone who is transplanted with our RPE cells and their area of atrophy, the wound in the back of their eye, can be smaller after 12 months. So not growing slightly slower, which is the best available therapy today, but we actually not only stop it, but can reverse it. Actually recovering areas of retinal tissue, they were not present before treatment. That is a reversal of the condition. And this is happening with patients who also are gaining vision. You shouldn't gain vision when you have dry MD. You should only lose vision. And so it is a completely new paradigm, a new way of thinking about what's possible in the setting of dry AMD. Yeah, this is super exciting. So we're speaking with Brian Culley. He's the CEO of Lineage Cell Therapeutics. And on the other side of the break, we'll explore what are the therapies in the pipeline right now at Lineage Cell Therapeutics. But then we'll also explore maybe some of the crystal ball type. What possibly can we do with this new type of approach? This is a Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Collabra, and we're talking to Brian Culley. He's the CEO of Lineage Cell Therapeutics. And we started on the other side of the break talking about therapies that were approaching retinal problems, the various issues that occur inside the eye. But tell me about what else is happening in terms of other targets for this type of cell therapy. The other clinical program that we're very excited about is in spinal cord injury. Unlike dry age-related macular degeneration, which typically affects people in their 70s or 80s, and it has to do with you essentially outliving a specific type of cell, spinal cord injuries are very different. No one ever expects that they're going to have a spinal cord injury. You know, the the car crash, the, the mountain biking or the skiing or, or even an epidural gone wrong. These are, are traumatic injuries that often happen with people who are much younger 
And so they have their whole lives ahead of them. But conceptually, our approach is similar. We have a patient who has lost a specific kind of cell, and we are manufacturing that cell outside of the body and then transplanting it and replacing it so that they may be able to regain more motor function and activity, which of course leads to much better quality of life for people who are otherwise paralyzed. Yeah, I think this is pretty amazing stuff to me. I know you probably can tell me all about animal models and things, but there was a video online where I don't know, he's probably in his 20s, a younger man who jumped into a swimming pool, dove in and said he dove in a few times, no big deal. The last time didn't work out so hot and actually fractured C6 and was paralyzed from the neck down. And actually on the video, you see him moving his hands and moving his arms after uh, treatment with this kind of therapy. And can you give me a little more insight into his situation? Yeah, I believe you're referring to a, a young man named Jake. That sounds like his, his life story. And he was a participant on uh, a clinical trial of our OPC1. That's uh, the name of our, our product candidate. And he feels that he enjoyed uh, a benefit, that he has more functional recovery than he would have had were it not for receiving that, that transplant. And that's really our mission with this program is that we know that many people, maybe two out of three people, are going to enjoy some level of recovery after an injury. So that on its face is not unusual. What's unusual is people getting two levels or three levels of recovery. That's a term of the art, and I can, I can help put that into context. Someone with a C4 neurological level injury essentially requires 24 hours of care. They can do very little for themselves on average. If you were to go from C4 to C7, right, three levels of gain, that person requires very little support. They can do all of their transfers and their cooking and cleaning and using the bathroom and everything. And so th those three levels, and we had people who gained three levels on the clinical trial, those are extraordinary gains in quality of life and independence and less reliance on the healthcare system. That's really what we're doing. What's been really exciting in, in getting to know individuals is learning about the ways that they use mobility. So if I say to you, you know, can you pick up a pen? You would say, Brian, yes, of course I can pick up a pen. And I would expect you to you know, lift your wrist up and you would pinch your finger and thumb across a pen and you would lift it up. Whereas someone with a spinal cord injury might answer the question, yes, I can pick up a pen, but they might do it in a very different way. They still accomplish the goal, but the, the tools or the methods, the parts of their body and the muscles that they use to accomplish that is very different. And that's what we're really trying to do is in particular help people with their upper extremity mobility. The use of your phone or just rotating your wrist so you can move your wheelchair left and right. These are small, subtle movements that are very important in the day-to-day -day living of individuals who have suffered from a spinal cord injury. I, I couldn't agree more. My father has three bad limbs and one that doesn't work so good. So he, he had two strokes that left him completely bedridden. And if you could get him, this two years in now, if you could get him to the point where he could simply reposition himself by being able to pull the rail of his bed and move a little bit, it would greatly decrease the severity of the potential risks from bed sores and all the other complications that limit the life of, of, of permanently affected folks. And so this, this was really an amazing video to me. And how, how, many data points do you have that show that this is really making a difference rather than people just who have spontaneous recovery? 
We've treated 30 individuals with this therapy so far, five with thoracic injuries and 25 with cervical injuries. So there are many thousands of data points that have been collected. The study to date have been single arm open label studies. So there haven't been a large comparative study, but of course, that's the goal that we're working toward. We ultimately want to ask the question, what is the benefit from receiving one of these therapies? Yeah, but you must have had significant evidence from animal models before moving to clinical and in, in, uh, human patients, right? Yes, of course. The, the standard models, typically rodent models, and of course, all of the cell-based work was supportive evidence to go into clinical testing. And then in the clinic, it does appear that there is a signal, meaning it is, it, it is likely based on the experts and their prediction about how these patients uh, would have otherwise done that there's some benefit there, but the, the, the proper scientific step for us next is to run a large controlled study where we compare patients who receive the treatment to patients who do not receive the treatment or, or maybe some historical reference point, and we compare and we say, yeah, do people who get this therapy end up doing better? And there are many different kinds of assessments that you can imagine people do. Um, you know, can you touch this finger? Can you reach here? What is the angle of flexion that you're experiencing? Can you urinate on control? There are, there are many things that people do to assess how well they're doing after a treatment. Yeah. And I guess the other thing that I don't know if you do or not, but it seems as though you could actually go back and biopsy that area around the, around the acute injury and be able to say, have those original oligodendrocyte cells that were added, have they differentiated into cells that are articulating with the existing neurological framework? Well, I'm really, although I agree that would be interesting, I'm delighted that we have not been able to do it because that means that everyone is still alive from our study. <laughs> but what we can do is we can do MRIs. And so we're able to see that the cells that we injected into the injured area have remained present. Uh, the, the tissue bridges around the area of injury uh, appear to be greater. The, the material that we administered, the oligodendrocyte progenitor cells that we manufactured, they appear to have settled in, integrated, uh, remain durable. Again, never a single case of rejection. So they're, they're essentially permanent. Nothing strange has grown in there in these spinal cords. And we've got patients now out 10 years of follow-up. And so we really think that what we're seeing is the integration and, and creating a new substrate that provides a framework under which the myelination of axons can occur and if the patient, you know, does their physical therapy and, you know, they may be able to get more recovery and more mobility than they would have otherwise. And it, it makes sense, right? Because a cell, an electrical impulse rather, cannot jump across a chasm. It cannot jump across a gap. So if you have an area where there's no material, you know, why would you think that you'd be able to send a motor function from your brain out to your, your wrist when you have to jump across that gap? So if you take that gap and you fill it, with neural cells, those cells may be able to support the electrical conductivity that's required to connect your brain to your extremities and give you that mobility. And that's really what we're doing because there are other approaches out there where you, you can grow axons and, and so forth, but nerves in order to, to fire together have to be all wired together. The axons need to be myelinated and and these are the cells that provide that myelin. Those are the cells that we're administering or literally the cells that provide the myelin sheath to the axon. So we think it really is the right approach of all of the ways that people have tried to address 
the loss of mobility and spinal cord injury. And, and frankly, we haven't seen anything work yet. So we're very encouraged that this you know, pioneering study in now 30 individuals really does seem to be a case of a, a phase one uh, single arm signal that merits conducting a large controlled study and really answering the question. And, and that's the path to a therapy that can be utilized by you know, everyone who suffers from a, a, this kind of injury that, that we're trying to treat. That's really exciting. And staying inside the CNS, there are many other neurodegenerative diseases that are on our radar as, you know, as our population ages and people don't die of mundane things as often as they used to, where we see increasing issues with, say, say Parkinson's disease, where you lose a dopamine producing cell type inside the brain. And are there possible therapies for new cells in contexts like Parkinson's disease? where those cells could be differentiated to produce dopamine or maybe be able to serve in some other function in the CNS? Oh, absolutely. A couple of things there. One is that I don't think of our cells as being specific to spinal cord injury. The cells produce myelin, as I just said. So they could be useful in other conditions where demyelination is the problem. So you know, transverse myelitis, sure, you know, why not? So that's actually a great part of my job is thinking about and directing the company to applying these cells in different ways. And just the other day, Bayer, a very large and successful pharmaceutical company, was talking specifically about Parkinson's because they, they use cells very similar to the cell lines that we use. And they had some 12-month safety data in the setting of Parkinson's. And that's really exciting. So yeah, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, ALS, all these neurological conditions feel kind of like they're more suitable for stem cell therapy or cell transplant therapy more specifically. But there are other organs, mesendermal organs like, you know, islet cells to treat type 1 diabetes. There's been some really exciting early studies in that area as well. I think ultimately people are really keen to figure out how to make cardiomyocytes help with people with heart failure. These will be things that will fall eventually. I, I really truly believe that this is a new branch of medicine and unlike the early forays using undifferentiated stem cells, which largely were not successful, using differentiated cells more like a, a bone transplant, something we've been doing for 70 years, I really think that these companies like us and the others that I mentioned are on the right track and are the future of this branch of medicine. Oh, I, I hear you 100%. I think that there's you know, probably great applications in livers as well. Oh, why not? Yeah, I, I we've the volume and the scale, I, I, we were approached one time by a company working in that space and you know, it was a bit daunting the number of cells that you needed to manufacture to think that you'd, you'd have a clinical benefit. But at the same time, it's important for me to say that that was years ago and there have been some incredible breakthroughs in areas of scale and purity of reagents. I, I mean, one of the reasons that I think that cell therapy, the way that we're talking about it today, is finally going to unfurl and, and lead to these great outcomes is because the tools that we use are so much more advanced than they were 20 years ago. 20 years ago, it was hard to control these cells. It was hard to grow these cells. And I'm not saying it's easy today, but the tools that are usable and the tracking of the cells is so much more advanced. And I, I really do think that some of these challenges that were impediments in the past are going to be things that can be solved by the next generation of cell transplants. And your work isn't happening in a vacuum either. I mean, there's all kinds of other, even small companies working in academic labs, working on other approaches to say, do complementary things like remove scar tissue. 
So you're not able, you're, so you're not just creating new cells to cellularize a, a a vacancy, a gap, but you're also able to get rid of the deleterious cells that, or the, at least the leftover scar tissue that has now taken on a fate that's working against the function of new cells. So really cool stuff there. Yeah, the the FDA actually indicated that we can try our therapy in chronic spinal cord injury patients. So heretofore, we have only treated people when they had a fresh injury, right? Three weeks to six weeks. That was the window because the acute inflammation had passed and we're, we're getting our cells in at sort of the right time. But we're really excited to see if we can have any kind of uh, beneficial effect in, in a chronic patient as well, because you know anyone who's outside of that initial window otherwise wouldn't be suitable for our therapy. And, and we just know that we won't be able to get to everyone between three weeks and six weeks. So it would be wonderful working perhaps with some of the same academics that you're thinking about or have read about and figuring out how best can we treat patients that have the older scarred tissue because the, the cells are in there, the, the wiring is possible. It seems biologically just a matter of figuring out how to engage that material stably and reproducibly so that you can get that function back. There also was an arm of the work happening at, uh, at Lineage that was working around the problem of loss of auditory ability. So could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is very similar to what we had with dry AMD. We, we obviously had some success. Uh, we had great clinical data. We, we attracted a, a major pharmaceutical partner for the vision program. And so not too long ago, we launched a program in hearing loss. And that's because one of the problems many people suffer from with their hearing is the loss of the auditory neuron. This is the cell that lies underneath the, the hair cell deep in the inner ear. Well, that's a neural cell type, and we've gotten really good at manufacturing different cell types. We understand the control of that differentiation process, and so we thought we could probably make those cells. I was astounded that the team was able to come up with a, you know, a, a scalable recipe for auditory neurons in less than a year and with less than a million dollars, which is incredibly efficient in the biotech industry. And we've already begun testing that, those cell types in preclinical studies through a collaboration with the University of Michigan. And so it, it really is just building upon the notion that there are probably many places in the human body where replacing the cell can restore function. And it's a matter of figuring out how best to, to make the cell, how you deliver the cell, and how you measure its effect over time. And if you can do that, again, you've, you've got a new branch of medicine and some exciting new products. Yeah. So is this just a case of adding this cell type below the hair cell. So the hair cells are still being mechanically stimulated in a, in a defective ear, but that signal just isn't being transduced into the, into the auditory nerve. So is it just that interface that can be recreated for, say, someone who listened to too much loud music asking for a friend? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Same here. I, I think that both exist. So some people still have plenty of functional hair cells and some people have lost them. The hair cell is interesting. I mean, if you've, if, you've, if, you've, if you've got a cochlear implant, right, and you're amplifying sound, but there's no way to carry it back through the auditory neuron, you know, you could be screaming in someone's ear and they'll not, they're not going to hear it. So what we're really doing is we're working at that, that next layer, that, that uh, auditory neuronal layer, which is um, important and necessary to carry the impulse uh, from the sound wave that's converted into an electrical impulse all the way ultimately into the brain. So we're, we're functioning as sort of a different step 
in the chain, much like, you know, glasses can do something for presbyopia myopia, but transplanting an RPE cell is sort of getting at the root. Same, same sort of concept here in the ear. And again, we have, we have a situation where there are many millions of people suffering from hearing loss and very few options, certainly nothing quite like what we're doing today. So now it's time for some new approaches and some exciting and daring new approaches. Real 20, 30 years ago, stem cell research took on some political overtones and was even considered controversial. And we had some restrictions as to what cell lines were available or development of new cell lines. And do you think that all of that early resistance to these kinds of therapies really slowed the progress ultimately in the number of tools we might have today? Well, it, it, indisputably, it did slow the pace of progress, but it, it didn't stop it. And ultimately, the, 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 the groups and individuals that are involved in that discussion landed on a place where at least some lines were drawn about what's uh, ethically acceptable and what's ethically unacceptable. To my knowledge, every organization that is, is working on programs like ours are working with what have been deemed to be ethically acceptable paths. So, you know, the same cell lines that we use, they're eligible for federal funding, you know, by taxpayers. It didn't matter if it was a Republican or a Democratic president, there were expansion of cell lines that were made available. So, you know, ultimately, I think everyone likes to find the, the highest and best way and, and fields mature over time. So there's been a progression away from some of the less, less supported approaches. Many of those approaches have been discarded and companies and organizations have found much better ways of proceeding where they're not getting involved in the ethical debate around where they're sourcing their materials. And one of the beautiful things about the stem cell lines is that they are self-renewing. So nobody needs to get original material. It, it's already available. It just gets grown in a lab and, and continues forever and ever in that way. Pretty exciting. So I guess the if you had a crystal ball, or let's even get rid of the crystal ball, if you just had a favorite potential project for Brian Cully that maybe would be five years down the road, is there something that you would like to see this technology applied to? Absolutely. And I'm taking steps on that already, but they haven't been disclosed. So of course I have a favorite project, and, yeah. uh, but they, they, these projects are like my children. I love each of them in their way, but there is something in the future that I'm, that I'm excited about. And you know, I look forward to planting the seeds of that project so that it can get some maturity. And then, you know, maybe someday it'll, it'll get to the point where it's something we're, we're talking about more publicly. But yeah, I've got 200 different cell types of the human body and I, and I get to go through and with the team think about, you know, where should we apply our technology? What's the best business case? What's the best clinical case? Uh, where do we think we can be successful? And it's, it's an incredible opportunity to be able to lead an organization working in this area and, and some of the fun things that we get to do. Well, it seems to me that if you could do this with great agility, that, and, and I'll just take some guesses, you don't have to even make any noises if I hit the nail on the head, but it seems like type one diabetes is the easy one that's on the, on the radar and also, you know, potentially even sickle cell disease, but there seem to be almost endless applications of this kind of corrective cellular therapy that this is only going to get better as time goes on. So I hope when you do disclose them, get in touch with me and let's talk about it here on the podcast. I'd really appreciate that. That sounds fun. I'd love to do that. So Lineage ther Cell Therapeutics, you smaller company. This sometimes gets better when you're partnering with folks who've already been through a lot of these slings and arrows and regulatory issues. And are there partners that you're working with to accelerate the pace of discovery? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're extremely proud of a partnership we entered into with uh, Roche and Genentech. This was a $670 million uh, deal that had a $50 million upfront payment. That's a very large deal in the world of cell therapy and cell transplants. And so we felt quite proud to have attracted the number one company in ophthalmology to help us work on our ophthalmology program. And in fact, they're now conducting a clinical trial using the cells that we've manufactured, and they're looking to optimize how those cells are, are delivered to patients. And you know, when their data comes out and, and hopefully endorses and replicates our data, I think people are going to be extremely excited about that. People want to learn more about lineage cell therapeutics and maybe see what's in the pipeline. Are you present on social media or maybe a website? Yeah, absolutely. So lineagecell.com is our website as a public company. We also have extensive information through our filings. And then personally, I'm available at CEO underscore Cully, which is my social handle. And yeah, I, I think I, I probably am more active on social than a lot of CEOs. So you know, I like to talk about the company and I like to engage with investors and other people. And it's a, it's a fun way to, to be able to in, enjoy what's happening in social media as well as be working in the furtherance of your organization's goals. You know, that's going to pay you big dividends in the long run. I hate to tell you. <laughs> I hope so. That sounds <laughs> I, fine. I, I think it really matters. I think it really matters because uh, you, most of us don't have access to the CEO of a company who's, you know, pulling the levers at this kind of work. And to be on the front line and answering questions, I think reflects very positive on the company and also spotlights the technology in a really favorable way. So I, I think that's going to work well for you. Well, I thank you. I'm very proud of the work. We have nothing to hide. I, I'm trying to get more and more people to pay attention to it. So thanks for wanting to do this and, and being keen on our story, because I, I think it is a fascinating story. And having the Roche validation certainly is valuable. And, and you know, the data are, are there for the world to see. And, you know, look, at the end of the day, when, when you watch that video of one of those patients, or I sit, you know, with the little old lady who can write a check without putting on her glasses. I mean, these are real life stories after our treatments. And it's incredibly empowering to, to kind of feel what they have gone through after being part of our clinical trials and, and know that we're onto something very special. Well, thank you very much, Brian. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. All right. It has been my pleasure. And if there's anything you'd like to follow up on, let myself or Rochelle know and we'll, we'll take care of it. And for everyone else, thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Biotech Podcast. Think about how exciting this is because so many diseases and disorders, long-term developmental disorders, that really start at the level of the cell may be corrected by replacing the cell. And I think it's another example of some hopeful, hopeful therapeutics that are on our radar that are maybe just a few years out before we can fix some problems that we can't fix today. And things, as we discussed, like macular degeneration, maybe things as complicated as type 1 diabetes, may be a thing of the past very soon. This is a Talking Biotech podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.